Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Hani Traub, MD, about the article, Pediatric Delirium and Associated Risk Factors, a single-center prospective observational study published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in May 2015. Dr. Traub works as an associate professor of pediatrics in the Department of Pediatric Critical Care at Weill Cornell Medical College, New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York. Welcome, Hani. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Dr. Parker. Would you just give us some background on your study on delirium in children? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So delirium, it's an acute and fluctuating change in the way, uh, in attention and in cognition, and it's the result of the underlying medical illness. So just like when you're very sick, it can affect your kidneys. When you're very sick, it can affect your brain as well. Delirium in adult critical illness has been recognized as a huge problem for the past decade or so. But awareness as to its prevalence within pediatrics is considerably less, largely due to the fact that this is not something that most ICUs routinely screen for in children. So the background for this study was that I and my research group became aware that this was a big problem within pediatrics as well. And we decided to try to screen for it and couldn't find a screening tool that worked in our particular ICU, Um, so developed our own. And over the course of the development of that tool, we had hundreds and hundreds of children who were comprehensively assessed for delirium. So what we do here in this study is we describe a group of these children, 99 consecutive patients, who were assessed for delirium, uh, describe the prevalence of delirium within this cross-section, and some associated risk factors. How did you develop the tool? What had happened was that when I had been training in pediatric critical care, I had never heard the term delirium. It's actually uh, astonishing because it is a pretty common topic nowadays, but that's only been over the last maybe five or six years. And I had had these patients with refractory agitation, these children who were inconsolable on their ventilators, and I just thought they were, quote, impossible to sedate, which in retrospect seems physiologically implausible. But I hadn't known that there was this entity called delirium that that might explain their constellation of symptoms. And when we first began looking into this, what we discovered was that the agitated children, the children with the hyperactive form of delirium, were probably only the tip of the iceberg, that what was more prevalent and more worrisome were the the well-behaved children, the seven-year-old who would just lie there in her bed and let us do whatever we needed to do to take care of her. Obviously, highly abnormal behavior, but the child wasn't bothering the medical team, so this wasn't recognized as abnormal. And we decided we needed to start screening for both the hyperactive and the hypoactive types of delirium. And there's a wonderful tool that was available called the Pediatric Confusion Assessment Method for the ICU. But we weren't able to use it successfully in our unit because it's not suitable for children under five, children who have developmental delay, and children who won't cooperate. And that described kind of (laughs) the majority, (laughs) (laughs) the majority of my unit anyways. So we sat down with our nurses and we said, okay, you know, what would be ideal? What would you need in a tool? And the list we came down with was it needed to be quick. Everybody agreed on that. Yep. And it needed to not require the child's cooperation because the children probably at highest risk for delirium are the least cooperative, especially when they're extremely sick. 
And then the other things that made it to the wish list was that it needed to be useful across the whole spectrum of the pediatric ICU. We didn't want different tools for different age groups. And we we also wanted to try very hard to include children with significant developmental delay, as we suspected they would be at higher risk for developing delirium. If you think about it, if you have a disorganized brain at baseline, it may be less resilient, less able to handle the stress of critical illness. So once we had that wish list, my research partner, who is a brilliant child psychiatrist, her name is Gabrielle Silver. Dr. Silver adapted another tool that existed to look at emergence delirium, which is a subtype of delirium that happens after anesthesia in children. Uh And she adopted the tool and came up with what we call the CAPD, the Cornell Assessment for Pediatric Delirium. We piloted it in 2012 and then did a larger scale validation study in 2014. And it's the secondary analysis of the data we collected during the validation study that is described in the paper we're discussing today. So how did you do this study? I mean, you kind of gave us a really wonderful background of how you got your tools. So how did you determine delirium and how did you do this study? And tell us a little bit more about what's in your tool. Great. So the way we did this study is each of the children had a comprehensive assessment for delirium. So the way delirium is diagnosed, the gold standard for diagnosis are the GSM criteria, so the Psychiatric Diagnostic Statistical Manual criteria for diagnosis. And it requires several elements. One is that it has to be acute, it has to be a change from baseline, and it has to be fluctuating, as in not static. There has to be at least the potential for reversibility. And it has to involve a change in two particular areas. One is awareness or attention, and the other is cognition. And again, it needs to be secondary to the disease process, so it's a function of the underlying illness that's causing the acute brain injury, that's causing the behavioral symptoms that we see as delirium. So the way delirium has traditionally been diagnosed is with a comprehensive psychiatric interview and exam. So what we did in this study is a comprehensive psychiatric interview and exam. There were 99 children included, and they could, have, they could be assessed by the psychiatrist up to five times. Most kids, the median was about was two assessments per subject. And the data we collected with respect to demographics, severity of illness, and associated risk factors are what we present here in this paper. So what did you find? We found that delirium is very prevalent in our unit. It's about 20% of children in our ICU on any given day are delirious. And we also found that there are associated risk factors. As we had hypothesized, those with baseline developmental delay were more likely to be delirious. And we also found children on mechanical ventilation, invasive mechanical ventilation, were more likely to be delirious. And this is very consistent with the adult delirium data. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, we found that children between two and five years of age also seem to be at highest risk. And I say surprising because we had assumed that the younger children, the neonates, children under one or under two, would be more vulnerable. But in fact, any which way we looked at the data, it seemed as if the two to five-year-olds are at higher risk of being delirious on any given day. Why do you think that is? Hmm. We have a whole bunch of theories as to why (laughs) that require some testing. I think it is related to their developmental stage. And I think the two particular areas that are most likely responsible for this increased prevalence is children of this age are very, very sensitive to physical stimulation. They need constant stimulation from their environment. They don't hold still well. 
As, uh, anybody <laughs> yes, we've ever, all noticed that. Yeah, anybody who's <laughs> ever been on an airplane with a two-year-old can testify to that. They're not meant to be still. And then we take these children and we put them to bed for days on end. And we deprive them of that normal kind of environmental stimulation that their brains actually require to organize. And that is something that is physiologically plausible. There is a compelling adult literature that show that early mobilization and kind of getting the adult patients up and moving and interacting with their environment seems to be protective on the development of delirium. So that might be a beautiful area where we could intervene in this high-risk group. The other area, the one where it's going to be harder, I believe, to make some headway is with the whole sleep disruption cycle. Uh-huh. There's a robust sleep literature coming out of intensive care units today, and it really shows how disordered sleep is while in the intensive care unit. And it's, it's something we're doing in the ICU because as soon as they're transferred to the floor, it seems to regulate somewhat. And what we often find is that the delirious children have disordered sleep. And it's a chicken and egg phenomenon. So sometimes right. the mother will say, well, of course he's delirious. He was up all night. And uh-huh. we say, well, maybe he was up all night because he was delirious. There's something about delirium that interferes with the ability to kind of reestablish that circadian rhythm. So two- to five-year-olds seem to be most vulnerable to sleep deprivation, not with respect to delirium or critical illness, but in general, with respect to the fact that they've only newly consolidated their sleep cycles, while the infants are kind of used to more of that uh, periods of awake and sleepiness during the day. And the older children are more protected. You know, once you're at the school age, if you're sleep deprived for a period of time, it's not as disruptive as it is when you're in that preschool age group. So those are some theories that we have and stuff that we Uh need to test with kind of prospective interventional studies. Did you think the 20% prevalence of delirium in your unit was more than you expected, less than you expected, about what you expected? It's about what we expected. When we had first started doing delirium research, we had suspected the rate would be more in the 10 to 15% age, 15% prevalence rates. But in study after study, we seem to be coming back to this 20% rate. And I actually wonder if the prevalence rates in other ICUs may be even higher because we've been thinking about delirium for several years now. Uh Our general sedation practice is to keep children as awake as is safe. So we, we try to, to run our kids pretty, pretty light on, uh, on sedation, a kind of a, a meticulous attention to pain control, but as little sedation as we can safely provide. And sedation is clearly tied to delirium. In every study that's been done, the more sedated somebody is, the more likely they are to become delirious. So I wonder if prevalence rates in other units is perhaps even higher. So if you have that three-year-old that's mechanically ventilated and becomes a total maniac and the nurses say, you've got to give him more drugs, more drugs is probably going to make the delirium worse, and that's probably why the kid is such a maniac. What do you do with them? That's an excellent, excellent question. We, we've spent a lot of time convincing people that less, in fact, is more, and, and we've had considerable success in managing the, quote, unmanageable, unsedatable child. So at this point, we've made believers out of our, our bedside nurses. What we try to do is employ non-pharmacological approaches. Uh-huh. So if you think about it, if three or four mics per kilo per hour of fentanyl isn't enough, it's unlikely that six or seven will be. <laughs> and if that, you know, every time you push the midazolam infusion and up the drip rate, the kid gets more agitated within a half hour, then clearly that's not working. So sometimes these children do very well when you back off their sedation and get rid of the deliriogenic medications that you can. We try to consolidate sleep. We try to mobilize, get these kids moving as much as possible. A huge 
game changer in our ICU was now when the kid wakes up, instead of going and giving a bolus of fentanyl, the approach should be, oh, hello, sweetheart, you're awake. Time for some physical therapy. And you Mm -hmm. kind of exercise them and move them around in their bed. We've also tried to modify the environment as much as we can. It's amazing what putting on somebody's glasses can do when they uh, can't see quite well. Uh-huh. But there are, there are plenty of times where, despite our best effort, the non, kind of the behavioral interventions and the removal of offending agents isn't enough. And then we turn to pharmacology and yep. the medication we've been using more and more these days is quetiapine, which is an atypical uh-huh. antipsychotic. Uh-huh. And the reason we use quetiapine is simply because it has a very favorable side effect profile. And one of its side effects is sedation. So it, it's, it seems to work well. And in some children, it's, it seems almost like a, a switch. You get some quetiapine on board and get rid of some of the offending medications, and the unsedatable child starts focusing and interacting with the, with the hospital staff. Now, you had a, psychiat- a psychiatrist evaluate these children formally for delirium. And then I gather that you use that to validate your tool. Is that correct? Correct. correct. So, so tell me a little bit about your tool. So our tool has eight questions, and it's scored on a Likert-type scale. So it's, you know, sometimes, never, uh-huh, uh-huh. usually. And in that way, it kind of takes into account the fluctuation that happens over the course of the nurse's shift. It's designed to be used by the bedside nurse as part of her care, and as such, it only takes about 20 or 30 seconds, once nurses are used to it, up to two right. minutes when you first start out to score, because it asks questions about their observations of the child over the course of their shift. It asks about eye contact, consolability, interactions, ability to communicate needs. Our nurses find it extremely easy to use in all but the youngest patients and those with developmental delay. And it's being used, actually, in more and more pediatric ICUs in the U.S. and Europe. A growing number of them are using it successfully. And, again, the only children for whom it's difficult to interpret some of the items are the kids under two. Uh-huh. So we have this developmental anchor points chart that they use just as a point of care reference. What is considered appropriate eye contact in an eight-week-old? Or uh-huh. how do you uh-huh. define consolability in a three-month-old on event? So it's, it's just a little <laughs> yeah. kind of cheat sheet that the nurse can look at to remind him or herself what to expect of a sick child at this young age. And, and with those anchor points, it's being used pretty much routinely in every patient in our unit and in other units as well. And so they they fill it out at the end of their shift when they've had the opportunity to... To benefit, yeah. Sounds like a great tool. It captures the yeah. nurse's need to have something simple to use, and it captures the fluctuating nature of delirium. Exactly. And I think it also captures the intensivist's uh, short attention span, and that it's, uh, <laughs> it's a number. You know, it's not a, it's not a present or absent. It's, it's an actual number that you can use to trend. And uh-huh. we consider a score of nine or higher to be a positive. But, you know, if you used to be 14 and now you're 11, then you're heading in the right direction. Well, uh, uh-huh. uh, so I, I think it's it's satisfies the needs of the ICU in uh, many different ways. <laughs> so what were the challenges for you in carrying out this study? The, the children with developmental delay are always problematic in delirium research because, as you know, what's required is an alteration from baseline 
And each of these children has their own individual baseline. So it's tempting. And what many, many delirium uh, researchers have done in the past is exclude those with baseline developmental delay or in the adult population, baseline dementia, which is not really analogous, but kind of a a similar grouping. And we, we struggled with that decision during study design because we knew that including these children in the validation study would obviously water down our specificity because many of them would screen positive, but they might screen positive on any given Tuesday, even when they're home and at their baseline health. And for the psychiatrists as well, it takes much longer to diagnose based on psychiatric interview a child with developmental delay because you really need Uh, to get a feel for the child's baseline. Right. So that's that's the area where we've where we've struggled the most. But after much discussion, decided to include them as we thought they'd be at highest risk. Uh-huh. I'm very very glad we do because I think the data that we have shows that it it would not be fair to exclude these hard to assess children from ongoing delirium research. So what have you have you taken anything from this study or your work in general and translated it into things that we should do and care for our children in the in the PICU? Absolutely. I think we and others have shown that this is real. Pediatric delirium is prevalent and it is clearly associated with at least short-term morbidity. So I I think we can't continue to ignore this problem. I think we've shown that widespread screening is necessary and feasible. And I think that should be a first step in improving the care that we provide. Simply screening for delirium, noting it and recognizing it is a huge step in the right direction. With simple changes, once delirium is recognized, we can often improve the child's experience in the unit. And with ongoing research, I'm hopeful that we'll design therapies to prevent delirium from ever occurring, and when it does occur, to shorten its duration. That really is a laudable goal, an ambitious one, but certainly, as you have pointed out, really worth pursuing. Thank you very much, honey. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Dr. Parker. Thank you for the invitation. We have been talking today with Dr. Hani Traub from Cornell Medical College, New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York, about the article, Pediatric Delirium and Associated Risk Factors, a single-center prospective observational study published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in May 2015. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion? Or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at L. Harmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash Project Dispatch. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. 
Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.